Hello, everybody. Welcome to International Buzz Podcast, brought to you by WordBee. This is Mark Schreiner. I'm going to be your host for today's episode of International Buzz. Today, we have a guest who resides, I believe, down on the coast or close to the coast of Oregon, but is originally from Germany. He's been in the industry for many years and has a very interesting background. Our host today is... Joost Tschetscha. Easy for you to say, Joost. <laughs> Easy for me to say, I know. Joost yeah. has written, I think, two books or three books. He's written A Translator's Toolbox for the 21st Century, Translation Matters. And then he co-authored Found in Translation, How Language Shapes Our Lives and Transforms the World. And to be honest with you, I've read many of your articles, and I just finished Found in Translation, How Language Shapes Our Lives and Transforms the World. I'd like to come back to that in a second. But before we go any further... Joost, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you uh, got started in the industry? Sure. I originally come from academic background. I studied um, Chinese or Chinese studies. I went to China for a few years and then came back to finish my degrees and focused during my studies on the history of Chinese Bible translation. And that's wow. sort of my entry into translation. I, of course, had to study translation theory and all kinds of things. And after I got my PhD, I moved here to the U.S., and started to work for a localization and documentation provider in Bellingham, Washington, so north yeah. of you. I'm and, very familiar with Bellingham. It's, nice uh -huh. <laughs> it's yeah. a great job. And after about a couple of years, I left that company and then started my own company, and that, that was in 96. So, so since then, I've had my own company, and I provide English to German translation services, but also, and I think that's probably what I'm you know, better known for. I'm interested in translation technology, write a lot about translation technology, and do some consulting in the field of translation technology. Okay. Let's start back from the beginning. What was the initial draw to China, and then specifically Bible translation <laughs> in China? I mean, I've, I've never met somebody that specialized or actually knew anything about that. I know. You know, I could tell you some really interesting stories that I made up over the years why I started to study Chinese, but they're all not true. So. <laughs> we can do that over, over beers sometime, all right? <laughs> the lame story is that I wanted to do something that sounded really challenging and Chinese sounded really challenging to me. So I started to study Chinese. I never expected to finish my studies. But I thought it would be really fun to do that for, you know, a semester or two. But then I stumbled on a really good teacher who just really evoke some passion in me for Chinese and language in general. In fact, I've dedicated my last book to him as a, you know, thank you for what he's done for me. And he enthused me and many of my classmates certainly enough to keep it going, but also, you know, started something in me that is still going on today. I'm really passionate about languages. And the Bible translation, I actually became a Christian while I was in China. And so of all I, places, right? Of I all mean. places. <laughs> I, you know, my friends in Germany were so disappointed because they thought I'd come back a Buddhist or a Taoist or something. Right. But I came back a boring Christian. And, um, with with no kung fu skills or anything, no. right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, in the context of that, I started to look at the Chinese Bible, and it happens to be a really interesting topic because China was sort of the key mission field in the 19th century for 
mostly British and American uh, mission endeavors. And the Bible translation in particular was really controversial. And so there's a really interesting history that came out of that. And I sort of traced that back and wrote its history. And I, I happened to be at the right time at the right place. I was the first one who did it in a comprehensive manner. Now there's a number of people who are studying this subject, but I was kind of the one who did the first large work on that. And so I was very lucky that I found this essentially. Yeah, it sounds like you were lucky that you found a really good teacher, somebody who inspired you. Uh, oh, yeah, very much yeah, so. And, and that's great. And then you found something that was very interesting. And your German pre friends probably thought you had lost your mind or an uh, uber geek. But that's really cool, in my opinion. I read in your book that you worked for a while as a tour guide yeah. <laughs> in, the, in China in the late 80s, which I can't imagine. Because I, I think the first time for me to be in China was in 1996 or 5, roughly about then. And I was down in Shenzhen, which you wouldn't even recognize today compared to then. Oh, I know. Yeah. yeah. And that was, again, mid-90s. So I can't imagine for you back in the, in the late 80s being a tour guide. And I'm sure the governmental observations and controls were probably a lot more strict. Any, any interesting stories, language or non-language related to your activities as a tour guide? Uh, well, so I was a tour guide for German tourists traveling to China, and I essentially financed my graduate degrees by doing that three months or four months out of the year. And um, it was super interesting because I traveled all over China many times. But it was also very frustrating because the German tourists sort of, in the moment they touched ground in Beijing or Hong Kong, wherever they flew to, they kind of turned into toddlers as far as, you know, not being able or not thinking they could do anything and everything that they do had to do through their tour guide. So it's a very exhausting job. And, and I did it for about eight or 10 years and was very happy when I, when I left my last group. And so it's a great job for students or for, you know, young people. But at some point you want to stop doing that. I'm thinking of this one, you know, I'm telling this one story of this drunk Bavarian doctor who, you know, while we were in Guilin, which is a city in southern China, stole the rickshaw from one of the uh, rickshaw <laughs> drivers and drove through the street, drove into people, drove into stores, and I had to run after it. You know, so many embarrassing stories like that. I have also lovely memories, but mostly by now the embarrassing stories are kind of more present. For you. So it's a good job, but not something you want to do for the rest of your life, I think, for a student it's a great opportunity to go to China, practice your Chinese skills and do all that. But um, that yeah, is absolutely. Yeah. Huge responsibility, though, um, watching after everybody and being that cultural bridge. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Exactly. Uh, it's funny because we talk about, the, you know, the kind of the clash of cultures and how people change and, and sometimes have trouble adapting. And my favorite story involving German Chinese relations or cultural interactions took place in Shanghai. I was in a, in a business meeting. I was working for a Swiss company at the time. And I had our Swiss CEO in town and we had a German client and he'd only been to China once before. He was, in my opinion, quite German. And we had a meeting with several of our Chinese staff and our head of sales for Chinese was in the meeting. And, you know, the business culture in China is a lot less formal, a lot more flexible. You know, if you're late to a meeting, if you have to change the time and change the date, people just tend to go with the flow, right? Mm -hmm. And then when it comes down to etiquette for things like, you know, taking a phone call uh, during a meeting. So our, um, <laughs> our national sales manager, his phone started ringing in the meeting and our German client just stopped talking and starts staring at the phone. And... 
our sales managers let the phone keep ringing and ringing and I started sweating and our CEO from Swiss CEO started sweating because we could tell that the German was getting agitated. And the funny thing was, is that the Chinese sales manager was totally oblivious. He's like, what's the problem, right? You know, I don't see a problem here. And then so I said, Dylan, can you hang up the phone? So he hung up the phone. And then like three minutes later, his phone starts ringing again. And I thought our German client, again, he, you know, first or second time in China, really didn't know. But he was not too pleased with that. And, um, and he was had no problem showing it. So, But I think, you know, when you go to places like China, you have to kind of prepare yourself. And that's, unfortunately, sometimes that falls upon the tour guide to be the buffer there. Exactly. And did you get the contract in that after we that ulti- We ultimately did, you know, that's there good. was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and every time he came to China, uh, I made sure I spent some time with him and tried to, you know, help him understand the way things work there. But anyway, let's go back to um, what we originally wanted to talk about was, you know, language, translation and all that. One of the things I liked about your book, Fountain Translation, is that it helped me remember that at the core, this business or the localization industry and the, the translation business really is about language. Yeah. And I came in, into the industry on the business side. You know, I mean, I was a regional manager and I've continued to work mostly on the business development, sales, leadership side. And at the upper levels of most large organizations, it really is all about gross margin, you know, cutting costs, uh, improving throughput, etc. And we tend to lose sight of the the fact that, you know, at its core, translation is an art and it's an incredible art. And when you when you forget about that, it causes friction in the company because I know that we work with linguists and some companies don't even call them linguists, they'll call them resources, for example. And your book kind of make me remember that at the, you know, the heart of this industry is the linguist. They're the most, I guess, the most important part. Tell me, what's your experience? Because it seems that you work a little bit on both sides. You know, what's your perspective in terms of the business side versus the language side? Mm-hmm. And how do you marriage the, or marry the two? Well, I mean, first of all, the, what you describe about the book, that's exactly why we wrote it, right? We tried to, we wrote it for business executives and we wrote it for our families, you know, the families that never quite understand what we actually do as translators and the business executives who also don't quite understand what we do as translators from different perspectives, but neither of them really understands what translators do. So I think the way that I try to approach in business meetings or in communicating with, say, business leaders, this gap that there is between the way that they understand what translation or localization is and what it actually is, is that I I understand where they're coming from, I think. You know, I think that's it's important to be able to try to put yourself in somebody else's shoe. And and of course for them the ROI or the, you know, the profit margin or whatever, that's the key driver. And so you as a linguist have to be able to put yourself into that position. But I think it's our job then to make a case for what what is not only challenging, but really interesting about what we do as linguists. And you don't have to work in really exotic language combinations to do interesting work. Even in my, you know, typical language combination, English, German, there's plenty of of interesting things that I'm encountering. And so that's true for every language combination. So I think our job as linguists is to reach out, understand where the other side is coming from, but then tell our stories. And our stories certainly should be interesting and 
colorful enough to make the other side be interested. And, you know, that's what we try to do with the book. And that's what we, I think, need to do in everyday's life. And that's what we also need to do. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that when it comes to technology. You know, everybody talks about translation technology. And that's good. I'm glad we do talk about translation technology, but there's also another side to it. And that's the story that we need to tell. Well, and I, and I think you did an excellent job in the book. I mean, I remember the story of the emergency room interpreter and I read that. And I mean, it was seriously, I was, I, my hair is, was standing up on my back. You know I mean? It was just like, you could feel the tension and the gravity of that moment and how important a single word that's right. It is, right? Or can yeah. be. And, you know, and if it, it, maybe not to the same degree, but if you're a translator and you're translating financial documents or documents for pharmaceutical companies or legal documents, you can have a huge impact if you get the translation wrong. And it can be frustrating sometimes because you get clients or, or managers that are saying, well, you know, just lower costs, you know, lower costs. You're like, well, what about quality? Yeah. And they don't see quality as something they want to pay for until it's not there. And then everybody, you know, wishes they would have. You do talk about language as a competitive advantage in your book as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? In what sense, in, you mean? Uh, for businesses, uh, in terms of you know expanding and uh, oh, their, yeah. their ability to reach new markets. Of course. So I think 10, 15 years ago, you know, even larger businesses were not really aware of the importance of language and the relevance of language as to reaching new markets and gaining new markets. I think for larger businesses, that is has become very clear, very obvious, but I think for smaller and mid-sized businesses, that really has not, that's maybe not quite as clear. You know, language is the key to new markets, to new users. You know, it's people who don't speak the language of your product, whether it's Chinese product or it's an English product, American product, or it's, a, you know, from anywhere, you will only reach people with your product in their language. And I think that's, you know, in a way, it's the easiest business case of all business cases. You know, we know as users of products, you know, you and I use products every day. We know that we don't feel comfortable with a website in Chinese, even though we might be able to read a little bit of Chinese, but we don't feel quite the same level of comfort to buy from a Chinese website than we do from an English website. And that's certainly true the other way around also. So even the executive, you know, who has the same kind of sense of insecurity when buying from, say, a you know, foreign language website has that experience, knows it. And I think that's where we can communicate the necessity of translation from whatever language into whatever kind of market and the corresponding language that you want to you want to enter into. Yeah, totally makes sense. And in your book, you also talked about the ROI on interpretation and translation related to healthcare outcomes. Do you, do yeah. you recall that? Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I you know, there's it's a big topic here in, in the US and, and elsewhere right now and for good reason. And the reason is that healthcare can not be delivered well if it's not if it can't be communicated. And I think the unfortunate position that children are often put in, children who are, you know, in immigrant families who often are more fluent in the in the language of the healthcare provider or in the language of the country they're living in, then the parents are often put into the position of having to interpret for parents, you know, even very right. private or personal things that children should not be exposed to necessarily. And they don't have the skills, obviously, to interpret in those situations. And that's where healthcare interpretation, you know, is something that is not only 
important for ROI, but it's important to save lives, you know, because um, it makes a big difference whether somebody can be explained to properly how to, you know, what to do to combat a certain disease or to take a certain medication or do whatever it takes to be healthy and to become healthy. And, you know, that's, that's also one of those things that where you kind of look at it and you go like, it seems to be really a, you know, slam dunk proposition to have language translation or interpretation be part of the healthcare process, but it's often not. And the reason why it's not is cost, of course, you know. Um, I was, well, it's, <laughs> it's perceived cost on the front end, though, right? I mean, ultimately, exactly right. if you get better outcomes or if you get a clientele that seeks out your business because there is language support there or, you know, their language support, you're winning on both sides, right? Or if you're afraid of, of having that big lawsuit that, that comes your way because of, of a misinterpretation or of a lacking interpretation, right? I mean, that's, exactly. that's you know, I'm not a big fan of the American legal system in general. <laughs> but in this particular case, yeah. I think that good can be done with, um, you know, large suits that make it clear to hospitals and to healthcare providers that they do need to provide adequate interpretation for non-English native speakers. Agreed. And, I, and I've been, having lived overseas for so many years, I've uh, been in hospitals in countries where I didn't speak the language, and it can be terrifying. Uh, oh, of because, course it is. Yeah. Of course it is. Yeah. So, well, let me ask you this. You mentioned technology earlier, and you also said that a lot of your work relates to, or a lot of your writing relates to technology in translation and interpretation. Uh, okay, first off, as a linguist, should I be worried about being put out of work by some of the technologies that are uh, on the market or coming onto the scene these days? I think you should be if you don't inform yourself and if you don't make sure that you are matching your skills to the need that is still out there. So what I mean by that is um, machine translation. You know, I'm really more of an expert in the field of translation than interpretation. In the field of translation, machine translation is, of course, something that is on everyone's mind and doesn't have to be a threat to linguists can be a real opportunity, but it does require that you as a linguist have to have really clear and marked skills as a linguist, not just as a, you know, language transferer, if you will, but you have to be a specialist. And I think that one of the great opportunities that the rise of machine translation has given our industry and translators within our industry is that it has become ever more clear that just language skills is not enough to become a good translator. You have to have language skills and you have to have specializations to put those language skills into practice. And I think that's um, one area where you need to really, you know, beef up if you haven't yet. The other thing, of course, is that with machine translations, um, well, with machine translation, there is a, a host of new jobs. You know, obviously, there's the post-editing of machine translation, which is really a different job description than the typical, than the traditional translation is. Something that many linguists are selecting not to do. Um, but for those who do select it to do it, you know, it's certainly something that has a future and has the requirement or requires a great number of skills and fairly high skills as well. There's also, you know, the, the machine translation 
industry, both on the academic side as well as, um, or the world of machine translation, both on the academic side as well as on the industry side, is looking very much for people with our skills, translators who are, you know, not opposed to technology, but who are interested in technology to work with us to, you know, to further improve their technology and their tools and and um and that those are many jobs that are opening up right now i think um and what i see as a translator is that despite of what you know many are saying i have actually in the last i don't know 3 4 years i've been able to raise my rates significantly and have you know plenty of work to work in those rates and because I'm, you know, I have experience at this point and I'm, you know, specialized in, in certain areas where I have clients that know that I'm, you know, good in those areas and that machine translation, even machine translation that is post-edited can't do what, what I'm doing. So in a way, it's a, it's a positive and a good time. I understand when people get worried, especially people who are not very experienced. Um, but I think that if they talk to people who have some experience, who, you know, have been around and who are able to evaluate these new technologies, they should be able to put their worries to rest very easily, I think. That all makes sense, and uh, I think it's uh, good advice to people who are in the business. Aside from machine translation, uh, are there any technologies out there that excite you? Well, what excites me is, you know, we, we've been talking about artificial intelligence so much in relation to machine translation, but artificial intelligence is something that can be useful in many other areas in translation as well. So, for instance, um, one area that has been lacking is morphology recognition. So that's not a problem so much for East Asian languages, but for, you know, for instance, European languages, the difference in what a good morphology recognition should allow you to do is have a base form of a word in a say terminology database and have each of the morphologically different forms of that word be recognized when you do a translation and you encounter that term in your terminology database. And that is something that most tools don't have because it's it was tedious to build these rules for ever so many languages. What artificial intelligence is able to do now, and that's happening in some tools, is to build uh, systems that are morphologically enabled um, without having to manually enter rules to do that. Um, so that's really exciting. I think that things like, uh, you know, fuzzy recognition or fuzzy repair or, you know, a, a number of those things that are still relatively manual and or mechanical at this point are all on the verge of becoming much more easy with artificial intelligence that is part of, of our translation tool. So artificial intelligence is really interesting and not only in the area of machine translation, it is there also, but, but you know, there's many other areas where artificial intelligence will play a big role, I think, in, in translation technology. Yeah, I think that's uh, top of mind for executives in many industries right now. Oh yeah. What about on just on the tool side? Do you have you, for example, voice recognition? Mm -hmm. We did we did a trial when I was at CLS with a group of our in-house linguists, and we had some very impressive productivity gains yeah. when using voice recognition. Uh, how about what's your experience in that area? 
Yeah, I, I use voice recognition. I don't use it all the time, but I use it, I would say, about a third of my time. I think it depends very much on what kind of text you are translating. Some texts are more easily accessible with voice recognition than others. Um, of course, those who only use voice recognition would not you know, agree with that statement. But, but um, I do feel that I work more productively with voice recognition in certain texts and in others. And I have um, multiple sclerosis. So I, you know, I have problems with my fingers sometimes. I can't really use them very, I mean, I, it's sporadically I have problems with my fingers. And of course, then voice recognition is really fantastic to be able to continue to work. What is really exciting to me um, in that area is, so the voice recognition packages that you can buy the you know most well-known one, of course, is Dragon from Nuance, and there's about 10 or 11 languages that are covered, which is not very much. But there is really interesting articles being written about how you can use your your cell phone to dictate into 95 plus languages, you know, yeah. as many as many languages as are supported by your cell phone, and have that directly being spelled out, written out in your computer with some technology, some middleware in between. So, you know, voice recognition is not limited to the, you know, very large languages anymore, but to, you know, a first batch of, of you know, quote unquote, smaller languages as well, which is really exciting, I think. Yeah. And it, again, it also comes down to personal taste and, you know, how you like to work personally. If you can't tell, I like to talk. <laughs> so, Well, uh... <laughs> you know, one thing is talk, but I think what the biggest hurdle with voice recognition is that you cannot speak in short segments, but you have to speak in relatively long segments um, to make the computer understand you correctly so that the voice recognition can put into context what you're saying, right? So what makes it difficult for me sometimes is if I work in really complicated texts where I'm working with sentences that are, you know, half a page long and where I have to do a lot of rearranging as I translate, those texts I feel are not well suited for voice recognition or not as well suited because it's more difficult for me to essentially have this sentence translated in my head already as I start to dictate. Um, in those cases, I think it's easier to, um, you know, think with your fingers and type with your fingers. But in many other texts, um, voice recognition is certainly more productive. Another area where you have to, I think, watch out a little bit with voice, with voice recognition is that your editing process needs to be different also. There's no typos in voice recognition. Every word is typed correctly, you know, it's just using words out of its corpus of words, and they're all spelled correctly. But often the, the wrong word is being put in, you know, or sometimes the wrong word is being put in. So you, the way that you proofread a text that has been dictated is very different from the way you would proofread a text that has been typed. Um, but, you know, it's all a matter of uh, getting used to it. I'm quite certain that 10 years from now, this question is not even going to come up anymore. 10 years from now, I think we are all going to dictate we're not going to type anymore you know if you think about it typing is kind of geeky anyway isn't it <laughs> yeah well exactly i mean i think <laughs> steve steve jobs kind of alluded to the same point where he was talking about styluses for smartphones he's like why would we create a stylus why don't we you know we have them built in we have fingers right yeah, so exactly. why do we and you know and why do we i mean because typing is not something that we do naturally it's something we learn to manipulate a tool right that's but exactly. talking is something that comes naturally um, yeah but interestingly so, when you when you you know when when somebody sees you dictating to your computer, you are being you know called out as the geeky one, which yeah, exactly. is not the case, right? You know, but 
Anyway. Well, I, I, I dictate to my phone all the time. And, and in Japan, because I was studying Japanese, I would um, oftentimes just use Japanese as a way to practice. You know, so it's oh, yeah. multiple different uses there. Let me ask you this. Earlier, you gave a little bit of advice to translators and saying, you know, you need to specialize. And I, that's something I've been telling translators this year. When I was at CLS, for example, 90% of our business was financial, legal, some pharmaceutical. And those areas tend to place a premium on human translation, oftentimes in-house. They worry about security um, sure. and then also quality, of course. And so, you know, the, the qualified or experienced translators in those areas can do quite well. But let's take a step farther back. Let's say I'm fresh out of university or maybe I have any, I'm just starting university. I love languages. The idea of become a translator uh, just really appeals to me. What do I do? Do I need to go to a specialized translation program or should I focus on an industry specialty or, you know, what should I do? So I think what you should do is you should look what interests you personally. Of course, like you say, you know, financial and pharmaceutical, those are really big fields with lots of opportunities. But there's also lots of translators already specializing in those. So instead, what I would recommend translators to do is what's your interest? You know, is it games? Is it horses? <laughs> is it, you know, whatever it might be, there'll be translation in that area. And the more obscure the area is that you're interested in, the more likely it is that you can charge really high premiums for your translations. And the less likely it is to have a lot of competition in that area. You know, a good friend of mine exclusively does horse translation and she makes really good money with it. You know? I, and I, she's I, pretty I, good I, at it too. I'm, not, I'm, I'm sorry, I missed that. Horse translation? Horse, what yeah, it? just for horses. Oh, okay. and, and I mean, not for horses, but about horses. And, <laughs> and, um, so everybody has certain interests. And I think if you at least start with your own interests and try to market those interests in combination with your language and translation skills. I think that's a really, really good start. And then of course it can happen that you gain new interests or gain new areas of expertise maybe because of jobs that you were given by existing clients or, you know, whatever it might be. And that's a good thing also. But I think it does not make sense to artificially decide, I'm going to specialize in this, even though I have no interest in that. But that seems, you know, that's not going to go. I, I think that's sage advice. That's 100% uh, spot on. You know, I, I just hit 50 and I tell my kids, um, looking back, because you know, my oldest is just in university, and I said, he's like, well, you know, if I study this, I can make X dollars, and if I study that, I can. And I said, you know what, I don't care about that, and you shouldn't care about that. Study something you're interested in and, and pursue a career that excites you and interests you, and not just because you're going to make money. And if you find something that you really are passionate about, the money will come. That's I think you that's know. exactly right. And if it doesn't come, who cares, right? I mean, exactly. What's, what's you're money doing, you're, good for anyway? I mean, you right. know, I, I don't really mean that, but but I'm, I sort of do. I mean, you know, money really is a secondary or tertiary consideration. And I mean, with what are we, whatever we do, and if we're going to do fine with whatever we do, why not then do something that really interests us, you know? And I think that that is certainly true. Absolutely. I look at like, for example, what brought me into the technology side of the business is that I'm, I'm really interested in cloud computing, big data. I also do a little work on cybersecurity and it's the learning curve or the, you know, the learning process is almost effortless because I'm excited about it. Right. So um, uh -huh. I think that's exactly. really good advice. Well, 
I will probably wrap this up. I've just got like maybe one or two more questions. What's your schedule like in the next year? I mean, what's what's coming up? Are you going to be going to any of the big industry events like Gala or Lockworld? Anything else? Yeah, I actually was at, at Lockworld three months ago in San Jose. I might go to another Lockworld this year. Maybe there's one in Seattle, I think. I might, I might go to yes. that one. Yes. I will go to the ATA. I actually missed the ATA last year for the first time in 20 years, I think. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the ATA next year. That's always a really, you know, for those who don't know, that's a worthwhile conference to go to. And I think even for non-translators, because of the energy at that conference, you know, there's almost 2,000 people who are kind of giddy about languages. And, you know, that's something where you can recharge a little bit, I think, if you need to. And otherwise, I, um, I actually... I'm also spending a good amount of my time working on a big project for United Bible Society. So I'm going to go to a couple of conferences with concerning that. Um, but that's a that's a really big project. And we, can, we can talk about that another time because that's going to take another half hour to talk about that. But that's a really fascinating project where we look at, you know, the two and a half thousand languages that the Bible has been translated into and, and find out things, terms and phrases that really stand out in each of those languages and maybe make the Bible even more interesting in those. Well, anyway, it's a long, it's a big project. But, but well, um, I will. I just took a note. I'm going to come back to you right. um, in, in the coming months and uh, let's schedule some time to talk about the Bible project. Probably many people listening um, are already familiar with your work and your website. But for those that aren't familiar, maybe if people wanted to find out more about your writings, if they wanted to contact you, what's the best way? Because I think you have like three books now. They're probably all available on Amazon. Maybe you could just touch on each one of the titles and then on, on your website, if you don't mind. Sure. So my website is internationalwriters.com, but I think an even better way is maybe on Twitter. My, my Twitter handle is Dromobot. I'm fairly active on Twitter and having a lot of fun with Twitter, with discussions that are coming up on Twitter, etc. The last book that I just published a month ago is called Translation Matters, and that is a book that essentially looks back on the last 15 or 20 years of my writings and compiled 81 of those stories into a book. Many of those stories appeared online somewhere and have disappeared since. And I thought that was kind of frustrating that you work so hard on something that you publish and then it just kind of poof, disappears. So I published it again in a form that is not <laughs> going to disappear so quickly. And here's my passion when it comes to technology and translators. I think that technology is really relevant to translators. Translators have to be able to approach technology without worry. They have to make good decisions on how to use it productively. And I think in the process of doing that, have to find out who they actually are. So technology is a really good way, I think, of identifying who you are, what your skills are, and how you can put those skills into work as a professional translator. And that's kind of what my writing is about. Okay. And then your books are all available on Amazon? They are, yeah. 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 Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Well, hey, Joost, I really appreciate your time. It was great talking with you. If you're ever up in the Seattle area, please let me know and uh, it'd be good to, to connect. Likewise, if I'm down in, you're, I think you're in Reedsport. Uh, yeah, I'm in, actually, my office is in Winchester Bay and I'm looking at the Pacific Ocean as we speak. So I'm, you know, come by and I'll show you a beach. The most, that would be, most I will t- beach I, in Oregon. Awesome. I will take you up on that. Thanks again and wish you a great 2018 and uh, we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Likewise. Bye-bye. That concludes another episode of International Buzz Podcast brought to you by WordBee. My name is Mark Schreiner, and our guest today was Joost Zetsch. 
Thank you for listening, everybody. And I'd like to wish you all a very happy and prosperous 2018. Cheers. <laughs>